I'm going to pray one more time. Father, thank you so much for giving us your holy, inspired, and errant word. Father, thank you for the Christmas season. Thank you that we are joyfully anticipating, celebrating the birth of Christ. Father, we do pray that this morning and the next couple of weeks, as we think about Christmas, that you would reveal to us the glory and splendor of Christ. Father, now, as the word of God is preached from John, I pray that you would fill us all with your spirit. Lord, give us understanding. Lord, help us to apply very carefully uh, the words of the sacred text to our lives. Uh, Guard my lips very carefully, Lord. Only have me say what you want me to say. Nothing more uh, and nothing less. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. There have been many famous trials in American history. One thinks of the Salem witch trials where several ladies were accused and tried of witchcraft. Or one thinks of the Scopes monkey trial where John Scopes was accused and tried for teaching evolution in the school system. Or the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg trial where this famous couple was tried for espionage. Or the Ted Bundy trial or the O.J. Simpson trial. I think many of us can still see O.J.'s, I think it was a white Ford Bronco, cruising down the highway in California before he was arrested, and then we can all see O.J. holding up his hand and saying, this glove is too small. Y'all remember that? This is just me. Okay, a few of you do. Okay. These trials all captured the uh, imagination of our nation. But what's interesting is that none of these trials really affect any of us at all. Even though they're interesting to think about and talk about, they have zero impact on how we live our lives. But there was a trial 2,000 years ago, as described in John 10, that does have a significant impact on everyone who's ever lived. So it's important for us to pay very careful attention to the details of the trial described in John 10. Now, this is not a formal trial. But the trial of Jesus in John 10 does contain all of the elements of a formal trial. There is a prosecution, there's a defense, and there's a verdict. And the outcome of this trial affects how you and I will spend all eternity. So it's really important for us to understand what's happening in this trial, and especially to understand the verdict of this trial. So we're going to look at those three phases this morning. The prosecution, the defense, and the verdict. So first is the prosecution. What did the prosecution say in this trial? Well, the prosecution is convinced that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. Look with me at John 10, 29 to 33. We're going to dip into last week's text a little bit for some context. Verse 29. Jesus says, my father who has given them to me, that is given them to me, the sheep, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them, that is my sheep, out of the father's hand, which is an incredibly encouraging statement. If you're a Christian, God the father and God the son promise to hold on to you until the end. And then verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Shocking statement. And the Jews understood this, 
which is why in verse 31 we read, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So in verse 30, Jesus makes this incredible statement. He says that I and the Father, God the Father Almighty, are one. And as soon as the Jews heard those words, they began to look around for large, sharp stones. And they picked up those stones one at a time, and they probably held them above their heads, probably formed a circle around Jesus, and probably screamed, blasphemy, several times. Because they wanted to kill Jesus. Now, just imagine for a moment, death by stoning. Not a nice way to go. So many, many years ago, when I was in college, I worked on a golf course, as I mentioned last week, and one morning, it was a beautiful, sunny August morning, it was, it was a Sunday morning, um, I was mowing uh, the, the greens, and the course was essentially empty that early in the morning. So I'm on one of the greens, I think it was the 17th green on an island at Manitou Golf and Country Club, um, enjoying the beautiful weather, mowing with ear protection on, and minding my own business, and out of nowhere, I feel this really intense, sudden, sharp pain in my left collarbone. And I realized that I had just been hit by a golf ball. Someone about 130 yards out was playing golf by himself, and he hit a shot onto the green, and on the fly, it hit me on the collarbone. I thought I broke my collarbone, it hurt that bad. It was bleeding, it was bruised, it was bloody. That was one single golf ball. Imagine being hit by 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 stones with the intention of putting you to death. Now, the Jews knew that stoning was illegal, but in this moment, they were so filled with rage and hatred for Jesus, they didn't care. In that moment, their hatred for Jesus and desire to murder Jesus far outweighed their fear of the Roman authorities. They wanted Jesus, the blasphemer, dead. Because Jesus, from their perspective, a mere man, claimed to be God. These leaders were passionately opposed to the sin of blasphemy. And as a result of all this, of course, Jesus is forced to defend himself. Which brings us to the second point. So first is the prosecution, and second is the defense. So how in the world does Jesus defend himself against the sin of blasphemy? Well, his defense is multifaceted. What do I mean? Well, Christ defends his deity with the scriptures, first and foremost. Look with me at verse 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law... I said, you are gods. Notice the lowercase g there. If you call them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Now, how in the world do we make sense of these very 
difficult and obscure verses. Jesus says, you're accusing me of blasphemy because I call myself God. Aren't you familiar with the verse in the Old Testament where human beings are called gods, lowercase g, gods? And he's referring there to Psalm 82, 6. Now, more than likely in Psalm 82, 6, this verse is a reference to human judges who are judging in the steed of or on behalf of God. And so they're referred to uh, as gods, again, lowercase g, gods. That was the nomenclature of the day, that these judges are uh, dispensing a divine activity. They're judging, therefore, they're referred to as gods in Psalm 82, 6. So he's saying, basically, look, in the Old Testament, some human beings were called gods, and nobody stoned them for blasphemy. Why are you ready to stone me for blasphemy? Now, by proving that some mortals in the Old Testament were called gods, again, lowercase g, gods, Jesus is not implying that he's mortal too. He's arguing here from the lesser to the greater. He's basically saying, look, if you called those human judges, judging on behalf of God, gods, how much more should I call myself God because I am God, I'm divine, I'm God in the flesh. Now, again, why does Christ use this very obscure line of reasoning from this very obscure Old Testament text, Psalm 82, 6? Well, a few possibilities. His reference to Psalm 82, 6 essentially stalls this violent, raging crowd who are about to explode in violence. So he stalls them for a moment so that he can get to more of the evidence for his deity before they kill him with stones. Furthermore, and more importantly, since the Jews are basing their accusations on the scriptures, Christ is pointing out to them, you don't even know your own scriptures. You're accusing me of blasphemy from the scriptures, but you are ignorant of what the Bible really has to say, which raises an important question. How well do you and I know the scriptures? These leaders thought they knew them pretty well, but they didn't know them well enough. Bible literacy among American Christians is, is at an all-time low. The reason so many Christians are duped by progressive Christianity or the prosperity gospel or something else is because they are ignorant of what the Bible says on so many subjects. And may that never, ever be true of you or me. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you know more about the four gospels or the latest political headlines? Do you know more about the letters of Paul or the latest show on Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, or Netflix? Do you know more about the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Job? Or do you know more about the latest leadership book, or entrepreneurial book, or health or fitness book? God calls us to know the scriptures well. Why? because they are the source of life and joy and peace. God calls us to be devoted to the scriptures. What does that look like? It probably looks like having some kind of specific Bible reading plan. 
And maybe that's one chapter a day. If that's where you're at, that's awesome. That may take five, seven minutes a day, 10 minutes a day. It takes roughly four chapters a day to read the whole Bible in a year. That's roughly 20 minutes a day. Now here's the problem. Many of us get behind on our reading schedule and we fall off the wagon, we get discouraged, and we quit. Many, many years ago, I was hanging out with a bunch of pastors. There was a pastor with us who was just jacked, shredded, swole, <laughs> really strong is what I'm trying to say, okay? And we're all like, Jim, like, why are you so jacked? Why are you so strong? Because we were all envious of Jim. We called him the jacked pastor. I mean, I wish I was the jacked pastor, but. And he said, he said guys, here's the deal. So many people start lifting weights, and then what happens? They fall off the wagon, and they quit. He said, guys, I've fallen off the weights wagon so many times, but when I do, I get back on the wagon. I keep lifting weights. I keep lifting weights. I fall off. I get back on. I fall off. I get back on. When it comes to Bible reading, you're going to fall off the wagon. You're going to quit. When you do, say, God, forgive me for neglecting your word. I need grace and mercy. Give me strength to keep reading the Bible. I want to know you more. I want to know your word more. Help me. And God loves to answer that prayer. He loves to help us get back on the wagon. Well, why must we know the scriptures? So that you and I will not be duped like these religious leaders or by false teaching. But more importantly, we should know the scriptures because we want to be happy. And the greatest source of happiness in this life is relationship with God, and that comes through knowledge of the scriptures. In the Bible, God talks to us, we talk to him in prayer. That's where joy is found. Not in making more money, climbing the ladder a little higher, having more pleasure. Joy and satisfaction in life is found in relationship with Jesus, which is found in the scriptures. Christ defends his deity with the scriptures because he knows them well. In addition, Christ defends his deity with the truth. This is similar, but a little different than what I just said. What do I mean by that? Look with me at John 10, 35. This is an amazing verse, and you can miss it if you're not careful. He says this in 1035. If he called them gods, again, referring to Psalm 82, 6, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Don't miss those last five words. Jesus says, the scriptures cannot be broken. What's he talking about there? The Old Testament. He's saying the Old Testament does not contain any errors. That word broken means this. One scholar says the term broken means that Scripture cannot be emptied of its force by being shown to be erroneous. Another scholar says this. The term broken means Scripture cannot be shown to be erroneous that its specifics are to the detail proven true. 
In other words, Jesus says that the Old Testament scriptures are trustworthy and true. How trustworthy? He bases his entire argument on one word in Psalm 82, 6, which is why at GCF we affirm verbal plenary inspiration, verbal, every single word of the Bible is God-breathed, plenary. Every part of the Bible is God-breathed. This was the opinion of Jesus, the resurrected and reigning king. He believed the Bible was trustworthy and true. Now, many progressive Christians argue that the Old Testament especially contains errors. But hopefully, you see the flaws in that logic. Follow the logic. If Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then all that he thinks and says is true. Jesus Christ says right here that the Old Testament is without error. Therefore, the Old Testament must be without error, or the Son of God is lying. Said another way, you can't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ and at the same time believe the Old Testament has errors. Well, Dave, I've seen the errors. Well, show them to me. Let's talk about them. Those discrepancies have been around for a long time. There's all kinds of ways to reconcile those discrepancies. But the point simply here is that Jesus has a very, very high view of the Old Testament. Do you expect me to believe, Dave, that the Bible's version of God creating all things out of nothing is true? Well, Jesus believed that. Dave, do you expect me to believe that Jonah lived in the belly of a fish for three days? Jesus believed that. Dave, do you expect me to believe that Elijah actually went to heaven without dying in a flaming chariot? Jesus believed that. Do you expect me to believe that Moses actually parted the Red Sea? Jesus believed that. If your perspective on the truthfulness of the scriptures is not Christ's perspective, then you're wrong because you're disagreeing with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Whose side do you want to be on? His side or some 18th century Enlightenment biblical scholar? Christ's resurrection from the grave proves that he's God. I hope and pray that your perspective of Scripture is Christ's perspective of Scripture. If not, again, you're wrong. And God is right. You need to be convinced of the Bible's truthfulness in this day and age. Because if you're not, the cultural pressure is going to eventually wash you away. Because there is more and more and more cultural pressure coming. And if you're not convinced of certain things, you're going to give in to pressure. But if you believe the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God, you're going to stand. Christ defends his deity with the scriptures. In addition, Christ defends his deity with truth. And in addition, Christ defends his deity with evidence. Look with me at verse 37 to 38. 
He says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus says, look, fine. If I'm not doing the same types of things that God the Father does, then don't believe that I'm divine. But if I am doing the types of miracles, the supernatural things that only God the Father can do, which I've been doing, by the way, for a while now, then look at the evidence and believe that it points to my deity. That's what he's saying here. What are the works he's talking about so far in John's gospel that provide evidence that he is, in fact, divine? Well, there's lots of evidence. Uh, He turns water into wine. He feeds thousands with a few loaves and a few fish. He casts out demons. He cures lepers. He walks on water. He restores the sight of a man born blind. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. All these things, all this evidence points to the fact that Jesus is the divine Son of God. These are the types of things that only a divine being can do. Jesus does not say here, just believe me. Just exercise blind faith. He never says that. He says, believe that I'm divine by looking at the evidence. The evidence points to my deity. Therefore, I'm not guilty of blaspheming. Now, at this point, it's important to recognize that many secular people think that religion is based on faith. And what they mean by that is blind faith with no evidence, but secularism or atheism is based on evidence. Now, there are all kinds of problems with this. Consider a few. First, both worldviews, Christianity and secularism, are based on evidence. And both worldviews are asking you to look at the evidence before you believe their truth claims. Christians believe things because of the evidence, not despite the evidence. That's one of the major misconceptions in our culture right now is that Christians have to resort to blind faith. One of the reasons I'm a Christian is because I believe that all the evidence in philosophy and science, archaeology, astronomy, chemistry, points us towards the God of the Bible, not away from the God of the Bible. On the other hand, many secular people believe many things that they cannot prove with evidence. Many secular people are guilty of the very thing they accuse us of, believing things on blind faith without evidence. Like what? Let me give you a few examples of this. First and foremost, many scientists believe that the universe came into existence out of nothing by nothing and for nothing. Let me quote from atheist physicist Quentin Smith from Western Michigan University. He says this, utter nonsensical statement. The most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. That, my friends, flies in the face of everything we know about physics. We all know from the sound of music that nothing comes from nothing, don't we? I'm 
intended to keep singing that song, but I will spare you. <laughs> this atheist is believing this with blind faith. There is no evidence that something comes from nothing. What takes more faith to believe that God created all things out of nothing or that nothing created all things? Nonsense. In addition, one of the strongest arguments for God's existence right now is called the argument from fine-tuning, which is in the book that I gave out earlier. Eric Metaxas's book is Atheism Dead. In fact, one of the most prominent atheists of the 20th century, Anthony Flew, became a theist because of this argument after years and years and years of promoting atheism. The argument basically says that there, is, there are so many finely tuned conditions in the universe, there must be a designer. And we're talking hundreds now of conditions that must be in place for the universe to exist. Now to get around this really strong argument for God's existence, scientists pose this idea called the multiverse theory of the universe that says that we are one of billions of universes. Where is the evidence for that? <laughs> it does not exist. That is believing something on utter blind faith. Furthermore, many of you probably know this distinction there is chemical evolution and biological evolution. Chemical evolution deals with how we go from non-life to life. Both systems have problems, but chemical evolution has massive problems. In fact, the more we know about, we learn about biology and chemistry, the more we realize that chemical evolution is utterly impossible. And so, Richard Dawkins, a very, very a prominent biologist and evolutionist, is now arguing that life came to planet Earth, not through evolution, but through aliens. This guy's a scientist. Where's the evidence for that? It's non-existent. He's believing that on blind faith. We believe that Christianity is true because of the evidence. The evidence from fulfilled prophecy, the evidence from the resurrection, the evidence from science and philosophy and history and archaeology. Please don't deconstruct without doing some research. I'm sick of hearing deconstruction stories about people who have refused to take the time to read a little bit to read a few books and realize there is all kinds of evidence for Christianity's truthfulness. And Jesus is saying here to these people, don't just believe on blind faith, believe because of the evidence. I performed all these miracles, all these miracles point to the fact that I'm divine. Look at the evidence. Use your brains. The, all the evidence points to Christ as divine equal with the Father. Well, so far, Christ is prosecuted, then he makes his defense, and he points to the evidence, which leads to the verdict. What is the verdict? That's the third and final point. What is the verdict of this trial? Well, the verdict is very clear. The verdict is simply this. Jesus is God, equal with God the Father. Look with me at verse 38 again. Jesus says, but if I do them, that is, all these miracles, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Believe the evidence. 
that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus claims that his works are the necessary evidence proving that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. What in the world does that mean? Well, so far in John's Gospel, we have seen a unity of will between the Father and the Son. Verse 28 and 29, they are both working together to preserve Christians until the end. In addition, we see a unity of works between the Father and the Son in John 5, John 10, John 14. They do the same types of things. In this passage, we see a unity of essence between the Father and the Son in John 10, 38. When Jesus says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father, he is saying that he is of the same substance or essence with the Father. And by implication, he is one in substance or essence with the Spirit. All three are equally God because all three are part of the same substance, whatever that substance is. Godness. That's what I just made up. Now, theologians talk about this text often when they're talking about the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is a mysterious doctrine. Uh, and this particular verse um, highlights the doctrine of mutual indwelling or interpenetration, or perichorosis, all big words. All that means is, when Jesus says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father, he's saying that we are so closely connected that we are of the very same essence. We are one substance. We all share the same attributes. We are all equally God. And because they are uh, one essence, theologians also talk about the fact that there is one God, one essence. So Trinitarian theology teaches this, that God exists as one God, one essence, one substance in three distinct persons. Now to get at this, theologians use two big words that are helpful. Okay, ontological equality and economic subordination. What does that mean? Ontological equality simply means they are of the same essence. They are equal in godness. Economic subordination simply means that they play different roles. God the Father was the one who designed the plan of salvation. Yes, God the Father loves you as much as the Son. He designed the plan. God the Son came, suffered and died on the cross in your place. And then God the Spirit applies salvation to you. They each play a different role. There is one God, there is one substance, three persons, three distinct roles. Now this is more than just esoteric theology. And the Jews clearly understood this. Because when Jesus said, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father, they clearly understood what he was saying because they picked up stones to stone him. Because they realized, well, he's claiming to be God, equal with the Father, of the same essence or substance as the Father. 
By the way, the Trinity is not some ancillary doctrine. The Trinity is the very heart and soul of the Christian religion. How can I prove that? When you pray, you are praying to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you read the Bible, you're reading a book from the Father about the Son understood by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, when God saves us, the Father designs the plan, the Son executes the plan, the Spirit applies the plan. When you're, talking, uh, when you're doing evangelism, you're telling people how, how they can be reconciled to God the Father through the work of the Son and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the Trinity, there is no Christianity. It's important for us to be somewhat well-versed in this crucial doctrine. And again, <laughs> the Jews understood what Christ was claiming in John 10, 38. Now, Jesus could have said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Wait, put those stones down. Let's hold on for a moment. I'm not actually God. Don't kill me, please. That's not what he does. He actually doubles down. And he says, verse 38, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. So what's the verdict? The verdict is pretty clear. Based on all the evidence, Jesus is God, equal with God the Father and equal with the Spirit. There is one God in three distinct persons. Now, tragically, so many decide to reject this verdict. Look at 1039 with me. Again, they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands. These folks don't care about the evidence. Lack of evidence is rarely the issue for people. I was talking to someone two nights ago, and they said, yeah, I was talking to a friend, and so-and-so understands the gospel. They basically said, I want to live my, my life my way, and I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. That's usually the issue. It's not a lack of evidence. It's, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. Therefore, we reject Jesus. And these folks here are rejecting Jesus, and they want to kill him. Some reject him, but fortunately, many others accept him. Look at verse 40 to 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said... John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Notice the last six words. And many, lots of people, saw the evidence and believed in him. They believed in him. What does believed in him mean? In John 10, 38, to believe is followed by the simple dative and refers to mental assent. But in verse 42, believe in means to put one's trust in someone. Now, I know that most of you present this morning are thinking, Dave, I understand all this. I know that Jesus Christ is God. That's why I'm here this morning. Well, praise God. I'm glad that you believe that. You should believe that. But are you living like that's true? Are you living 
like Jesus is actually on the throne, ruling and reigning, equal with the Father, divine, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient. Since he is God, he is worthy enough or valuable enough to pay the penalty for all of your sins, which means that we can live free from condemnation. His deity makes possible the forgiveness of all of our sins. Since he is God, he is able to defeat the power of sin, the power of death, and the power of the devil, which means, as Christians, we don't have to be enslaved to sin's power or the fear of death or the devil. Since he is God, we can rely on his promises, and he just promised in John 10 that he will preserve his own until the end, which means that we as Christians can have assurance. Since he is God, he controls every single detail of history, yet he's not the author of evil, which means that we don't have to be anxious about politics or health or the economy. Does God reign or not? If he reigns, you and I should not be worried about the future. Since he is God, he is powerful enough to help us with any problem that we face. And by any, I mean any. Which means that we can go to him in prayer confidently asking for power and grace and strength to do what he wants us to do. And since he's God, he is everywhere present, which means that he is present with you when you are afraid and when you are lonely. He's everywhere present. And he's present with the saints in a unique way to bless and comfort and encourage and provide companionship. Jesus is God. Do we live like this verdict is true? When others watch our lives, do they think, man, that person believes Jesus Christ is God. Look how they're living. Look how they're trusting. Look how they're joyful. Look how they're hopeful. Look how there's very little anxiety in their lives. Do we believe what we believe about Jesus? If so, our lives should be marked by joy and peace regardless of the circumstances. The prosecution accused, the defense responded, and the verdict is in. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God Almighty, equal with the Father and equal with the Spirit. And we must live like that's true. Let's pray together.